you've ever experienced an earthquake, you can probably remember where you were and what it felt like. Now, we don't necessarily get earthquakes around here like they get out west and in other places around the world. But an earthquake is a sudden episode of shaking ground caused by seismic waves, which is energy released from rocks breaking and slipping against each other. I didn't come up with that definition myself. I found it in an encyclopedia somewhere. That's what an earthquake is. And if you know, if you've taken science class or you've been in an earthquake, you know that after an earthquake, you don't just go back to normal, but there can be these things called aftershocks. And aftershocks are these different seismic events that sometimes can have the same intensity as an earthquake. In fact, I've heard that aftershocks can sometimes be more dangerous because after an earthquake, everybody thinks it's safe to come out or to go back into buildings and stuff, and they're not ready for aftershocks, which could have the same intensity, but usually they gradually decrease over time. These aftershocks describe these shaking events that are usually lower intensity tremors that follow the higher intensity earthquakes. Last week, we saw what I would describe as a metaphorical earthquake in the book of Acts. And what is that? It's the Gentiles being saved. And we really don't understand because of our church, because of how accessible the Bible is, because we're so far removed in history from this New Testament church. We really don't understand the magnitude of this event. These Jews, for their entire lives, had been told that the Gentiles were unclean. In fact, for hundreds of years before the Jews, they'd been told not to eat with them, not to socialize with them, for they were unclean. And now, in this one event, Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius, and many Gentiles in his household are saved. It is an earthquake of an event that happens here, and it's going to shake up the rest of the book of Acts. We're really going to see in the rest of Acts, like I said last week, we see in Acts 2 through Acts 7, really, the church in Jerusalem and how the Jews are saved. In Acts 8 and 9, we see how the Samaritans are saved and those people who are kind of half Jewish, half Gentiles, and even that was a big deal for them. But starting from last week and moving forward in Acts, we really see how does the gospel go to the Gentiles? How does the gospel go to the ends of the earth? And just because this giant, not catastrophic, it's a good thing, but this giant event that would disrupt life for the early church happens in Acts 10, that does not mean there are not further problems that immediately follow it. And that's what we really see in Acts 11 today. We see a couple different events that take place following Acts 10, that also shake things up for the church. These are different issues that arise in the early church that the salvation of the Gentiles forced them to have to reconcile with. The early church faced various challenges, and we've seen this already. In fact, there's been a pattern in Acts, if you've seen it with me. We've seen challenges outside the church with persecution, attack the church, and then we've seen challenges inside the church threaten the core of the church as well. How did we see that? The apostles, Peter and John, first were persecuted, right? And this threatened the church because that's really the first time in Acts 4 that they are persecuted, told not to preach the gospel. But then what happens right after that? Ananias and Sapphira, people inside the church, believers who lie about giving money to have glory for themselves. And what happens? They die. 
And so this has the potential to threaten the church, but actually what it does is it unifies the church because they respond to sin correctly. And so we see this pattern back and forth. The church is persecuted with Stephen even being martyred, with the apostles being beaten in Acts 5. And then in Acts 6, there's struggles inside the church with what do we do with the Greek widows? And they handle it rightly, and the church is unified because of it. The New Testament church faced a lot of trials and events that threatened it in early church history, but we always see them respond well. We always see them respond in a way that continues to promote unity in the body of Christ. And why is that? Because Christ says, I will build my church. Now, in our church life, we're not going to face maybe challenges that they face then, but we do face issues. We face challenges that can be threatening to our church, that can disrupt unity, that can be hard things for our church to face. And as we see in Acts 11, this church culture, even in the universal church, faces challenges that maybe we even face today as a church as well. What were some different things they face here, and how should our church respond to these challenges as well? What I want us to see this morning is this. That our church should biblically respond to the challenges we face for the glory of God. Sometimes we can read the Bible, we can teach the Bible, we can go to Bible studies. But when problems come up, that really shows us what we're dependent on. Because so many times we're not dependent on the Bible, but we look to our own understanding. We lean on what we really want to when we face challenges when we face things that disrupt our flow of life. And our church is going to face challenges. It has in the past. It will in the future. And so how do we meet these challenges? We biblically respond to them. We go back to the Bible. And as we respond to these challenges, we do so for the glory of God. What issues did they face? Look with me at chapter 11, verse, verses 1 through 18. As we see, they first faced issues of legalism. They faced issues of legalism. Look with me at verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So remember, this is picking up right from where Peter left off in Acts 10. He's headed back to Jerusalem, but actually the news of what had happened in Caesarea with Cornelius beats him back to Jerusalem. He probably got a late start. Remember, it says he remained there for many days. So people probably came back and told the church, hey, this is what happened. And I would like to think there was excitement. There were questions, obviously, but I would like to think there was some excitement. But there also were concerns. There was also even some opposition. And we're going to see that. Look at verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So we start seeing this reaction from this certain group of people. Now, we're not quite sure who these people are. It calls them the circumcision party. This isn't like the Republican or the Democrat party. This is a group of Christians who really held on to Jewish law. Now, this hasn't been a concern for the early church yet. Why? Because they're all Jews. Because they've all been circumcised. Because they've never had to face this question of, hey, these Gentiles are unclean and they're not circumcised, so what do we do with them? By the way, we're going to see this resolved today. This isn't going to be the only time they face this. 
read ahead to Acts 15, they're going to run into the same issue. Read some of Paul's letters to the Galatians, to other people. He's going to say that you don't need to worry about circumcision anymore. And it's not that circumcision was wrong. We're going to talk about this later as we look at how can we apply these ways that the disciples handled this to even how we deal with legalism. I want to just say from the get-go, circumcision wasn't wrong. It wasn't a wrong thing to do. In fact, it's something medically that happens today. So what was wrong about what they're saying? They were equating circumcision with righteousness. And that's really what legalism is. Legalism is not strict rules. Legalism is not having standards. Now, can people be wrong in how they have rules and standards? Yes. Legalism is actually taking rules and standards and saying that earns me favor with God. The way I dress, the version of the Bible I read, it's not bad to read a certain version of the Bible or to dress up to go to church. But you don't have to do that necessarily. And legalism is actually saying that by doing those things, I have more favor with God. I have more righteousness with God than you do. And that's what I hope we can understand from this. They go to Peter and they say, we don't know how you could eat with these people because they are not clean. You're now unclean, Peter. And remember back in Acts 10, Peter had concerns about this, didn't he? In fact, what did he tell them? He goes to meet Cornelius and his family and he says, I just want you guys to know that it's not normal for me to be here. It's actually considered unclean for me to be here. And I use the illustration of what if I came to your house and said, hey, I'm happy to see you guys, but actually just me stepping into your house means that I'm unclean. You probably wouldn't like it if I, you probably wouldn't invite me back over if I said that. But Peter says that then to show how significant this event is. So what does Peter do? Well, he explains to them what happened. In verse 4, it says, Peter began and explained it to them in order. Now, some translations might say step by step or in an orderly fashion. He's going to walk through what happened from Peter's perspective. And you might ask, why does Luke take the next, it's from verse 5 to verse 18, so 13 to 14 verses. Why does he tell us everything that we already know happened in Acts 10? Why is he just repeating himself? There's actually a reason Luke does this. In ancient writing, they would repeat words, phrases, or even stories if they were significant. So why does Luke give us this whole story again in Acts 11? It's because this is a significant event. There's really not much different from what we looked at last week. And in fact, we're not going to take a ton of time and go through it step by step. We're going to read it and I'll make some comments about it. But Luke has this here to show us, hey, what happened in Acts 10? This is really, really, really important. I said this in Sunday school. If I repeat myself, it's because I am saying it's really, really, really important. And so look with me at verse 5. Peter starts telling this from his perspective. So notice he doesn't start with how did Cornelius understand this. He starts with what happened in Peter's life and how did he work through all this. So he says, I was in verse five, I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four quarter corners. And it came to me looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. 
But a voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and was drawn up again to heaven. We see Peter pretty much, detail for detail, repeats what's in Acts 10, what we've already read. He's praying, he has this trance, and this sheet from heaven comes down with all these animals on it. And it's full of both clean and unclean animals. Peter is wondering what this means. And God from heaven says, Peter, kill and eat. And we said last week, he's saying, sacrifice these animals, eat them. Now, there were clean animals on this sheet, yes, but there were also those that weren't clean. Camels, lizards, you know, things that we probably wouldn't want to eat anyways, but pigs as well, which were considered unclean animals. And Peter doesn't want to do this, but God says, what I have made clean, don't call unclean. And Peter's going to later see how this applies to the Gentiles. Look at verse 11, it says, And behold, at the very moment, three men arrived from the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Now that's interesting, because that's not exactly spelled out for us in Acts 10. We see that the Spirit, yes, the Spirit, yes, tells Peter to go with them. But he even gives Peter a little bit of a clue that, hey, you shouldn't make any distinction between Jew and Gentile. And that's where I think Peter is starting to understand what God is saying. Because by the time he gets to their house, he seems to recognize what is happening with these Gentiles. So he had six brothers there. I'm assuming assuming we're with Peter when this all happened. And then where he was later on, it says in verse 13, or it says in verse, yes, 13, as they entered this man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, Simon, who is called Peter. And he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us in the beginning. Now, Peter says, as he's starting to preach the gospel to these people, to Cornelius in his house, the Holy Spirit falls on them. Now, what did I say about this last week? I don't think this means that you're only saved if you get spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues. I don't know about you. I didn't start speaking in tongues when I was saved. Rather, I think this is a significant event. Where have we seen this happen before? When the Jews were saved in Acts 2, when the Samaritans were saved in Acts 8, and now when the Gentiles were saved in Acts 10. I think this is a specific marking from God to show Peter that they actually understood the gospel. And you might ask, why did God need to do that? Why did he have to have them speak in tongues? It is a visible representation of what was going on. How else would Peter have known they received the Holy Spirit, but it was displayed in these gifts? And I don't think that's how it happens in believers today. I do believe we receive the Spirit, but not with speaking in tongues and things like that. So I think this is marking a specific point in the history of the church with the Gentiles being saved. So Peter says this, and he says it to confirm what has happened so that they can know what's happened. In verse 16, this is something not mentioned in chapter 10. He says, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to think about how many things in Peter's life he witnessed, he heard, he saw from Jesus, that as things continue to happen in the early church, he thinks back and thinks, okay, that makes sense. 
how John baptized with water, but they are being baptized with the Holy Spirit. They can see now the Holy Spirit and spirit baptism on the life of a believer. Verse 17, if God, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And Peter pretty much says this. He says, what's going to stop me from baptizing these people? It's not going to be because they're Gentiles, because God has saved them. Because God has saved them, he's given them his spirit. And so Peter baptizes them. Notice the reaction of the people who have this complaint. They call them the circumcision party in verse 18. It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. Have you ever had something happen where you've just been speechless? I've had that happen a couple times, even here recently, where something's happened and I've just not been able to say anything. These people have no other complaint, no other remark, comment that they can make because of what God has done with the Gentiles. Notice what they do end up saying later. Then, or, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God granted repentance, which leads to life. They see how God worked in the life of these Gentiles to bring them to salvation. I do think this was an issue of legalism. Why do I say that? Again, I don't think legalism is just having strict standards. I'm not saying you have to have strict standards on dress, on what you read, on what you watch, things like that. But legalism is saying that because of these standards, I have righteousness with God. Really, that by these standards, I can have salvation. I can have some kind of righteousness or favor with God. That's not how it works. And so what were this, these people, this circumcision party, what were they saying? They were saying, hey, Peter, you ate with these people who, are, who make you unclean because they have different practices, because they're Gentiles, because they've not been circumcised. And this is going to become even more of a legalism issue later. Because people are going to say, yes, you're saved by grace through faith, but you also need to be circumcised. And be very careful of that even today. There are people out there who will try to say that, yes, it is the gospel, but it's the gospel and baptism. It's the gospel and voting a certain way. It's a gospel and living this way. Now, the, the Christian life, yes, does tell you to change it does result in you doing good works, but you're not saved by works. We can face legalism sometimes in areas that we might not think about it. It's not just in, in ways that we have strict standards or rules. Sometimes we don't like rules. Sometimes we don't like standards. But just having rules and standards doesn't mean that someone is legalistic. What makes someone a legalist? Thinking that following the rules of life equals a relationship with the author of life. And it doesn't just mean that we live however we want either. That's a lawless person. What is lawlessness? Lawlessness thinks that, okay, because I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. I don't have to follow any rules or standards. And that's not true. In the New Testament, we see different ways that we are supposed to live. But we don't do that because we want more favor with God. We already have all the favor of God we need through his son, Jesus Christ. Ask yourself these questions. Am I legalistic? Do I think that rules, standards, even just different practices, do I think they actually earn me favor with God? 
Does it mean that you have to change how you dress, what you read? Does it mean that you have to have no rules whatsoever? That's not what I'm trying to say. The heart of legalism is thinking that because of these things, I am a better person. I have a better relationship with God. Now, yes, you can grow in the Christian life. You should be becoming more like Christ, but that's not where your righteousness comes from. Your righteousness comes from Jesus Christ, who took on your sins, who paid your penalty. And when God sees you, he sees the righteousness of his son. Do you struggle with legalism? Do you struggle with lawlessness, just thinking that you can do whatever you want? Does it mean getting rid of standards? It doesn't mean getting rid of rules. Some people can go too far in both directions with this. How do we solve these issues even in our church? Ask yourself, what is truly necessary for salvation? Sometimes this issue of legalism can even lead us to not evangelize like we should. We think, well, I don't know if I could share the gospel with that person because they don't vote like I do, because they don't look like I do. And maybe they do have issues in their life. Do we see that they need the gospel too? Do I recognize what actually is necessary for salvation? How does Peter handle this problem of legalism? He explains the gospel to them. He says, no, guys, this is actually what happened. And this is how they were saved and understood the gospel. Do you rightly understand what legalism is? It doesn't mean you have to get rid of all your rules. It doesn't mean you need to have more rules or standards. Do you understand that legalism is actually trying to use these things to have a better standing with God or have more favor with him? Do you use those things to try to earn righteousness with God? Thankful that, to my knowledge, at least since I've been here, we've not had issues with legalism. I don't think of our church in that way at all. But it is something that each one of us can ask ourselves. Sometimes it can creep up in ways that we don't even realize, ways that we think that these standards earn us a better relationship with God. The church faced them then, and we will face them today as well. Secondly, look with me at verses 19 through 21, as we see issues of evangelism. Issues of evangelism. I'd almost call it, I almost put this in the notes, but selective evangelism. And why do I say that? Look at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Who was Stephen? He was the deacon. He was a servant in the church in Acts 6. And in Acts 7, he gives his testimony as he's being persecuted. And then he's put to death. He's stoned to death. He's the first martyr. And what happened in the church? Well, we talked about this. When Stephen was killed, it spread the Christians out. The Christians spread out. And in Acts 8 and 9, we see them spread out to Samaria, to Judea. And the gospel spreading out, not just in Jerusalem, but farther out. What we see here in Acts eleven nineteen is that it didn't just stop there, but actually it spread out even farther to these different areas. So this is actually looking all the way back to Acts 8, 1, seeing how the church spread out over the world. It spread to these different cities, Phoenicia, which was on the Mediterranean coast. It was about 75 miles northwest of Jerusalem. 
which some of these numbers that I'm going to give for miles and things like that, they're a little bit debated, I just want to say. Like, even though it was geography, sometimes it's hard to figure out where these cities actually were, especially if they're not around today. Cyprus was an island on the coast of Asia Minor. It was the original home of Barnabas, and we're going to see him pop up in this passage as well. And then Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was, again, I think about 75 to 100 miles away from Jerusalem. It was a commercial hub, and it had a lot of Gentile and Greek influence there. This was a big, big city, Antioch was. We're going to see these cities come up. There's a reason why Luke is telling us this. Look at the end of that verse. It says, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now, we can immediately have a bad impression of the Christians who went there because they were only speaking the gospel to Jews. Remember how important this event was with Cornelius. They did not really understand that the gospel was to go to the Gentiles. For years, they'd grown up thinking that the Jews were the only one that were clean. And even within the biblical writing, what does Paul say in Romans? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. God gave the gospel to Israel, yes, but then it would go out to the rest of the world. So these Christians, as they're going to these different places, they're not sharing the gospel with everyone, at least the vast majority of them. Notice what it says in verse 20. There was an exception. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of them who believed turned to the Lord. We start seeing that Gentiles are receiving the gospel. Now, we don't know exactly the time frame. How does this correspond with Cornelius and everything that happened there? But we're starting to see the gospel spread out even to Gentiles and other people who are not part of the Jewish community. These people said, these men of Cyprus and Cyrene, they said, we're not just going to share the gospel with Jews. We're going to share the gospel with everyone. And that was a big deal. And what happens? There are many people saved. It says a great number came to the Lord. How many is a great number? Well, I really can't put a number on it. But I think by the end of the chapter, we're going to see a couple thousand people, at least, that are Christians in Antioch. Because we're going to see that church continue to grow. Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So God blessed this. He helped them grow. He was with them. Obviously, he's the one who saved. And notice that it says those who believed turned to the Lord. I don't think that Luke is trying to use two different terms to say two different things, but they believed, and in believing, they turned also to the Lord. These men who shared the gospel with others, they were part of the Great Commission being spread. They may not have realized it at the time, but they were part of following what Christ had said in Acts 1.8, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we see that the hand of God was with them. It's an example for us that we should share the gospel with everyone. I don't think there's any of us that would say, okay, I'm not going to share the gospel with someone of a different ethnicity. But do you share the gospel with difficult people like we talked about last week? Do you share the gospel with those who are 
different from you. In fact, sometimes the hardest people to share the gospel with are the people who are in your family, are the people who are somewhat related to you, who you do know, but you've, for whatever reason, not been faithful to share the gospel with them. I won't take too much time to focus on this. It's a small point here, but we're thankful for these men who aren't given a name. None of them are really identified, but they said, you know what? We're going to share the gospel with the Gentiles as well. And this continues to lead to a great number of people being saved. Look with me at verse 22 as we thoroughly see an issue of discipleship. An issue of discipleship. Look at verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now you think here, okay, why did the church send Barnabas? Well, it's probably similar to the Samaritans in Acts 8. They wanted to confirm what had happened. They wanted to see if people were actually being saved. And they weren't trying to be critical, skeptical, or anything. They were trying to confirm what was happening. Why did they send Barnabas? Well, I think Barnabas, honestly, is the perfect person for this job. In fact, if you get nothing else from my sermon today, you should be like Barnabas. Barnabas is a great example for Christians to follow. You should try to live like Barnabas because we see him do some pretty cool things here even in Acts 11. So who was Barnabas? Well, we first met him in Acts chapter, I believe it was chapter 4. As he's giving money, he sells his property and he gives that money to the poor. And in fact, Ananias and Sapphira see Barnabas and how much people liked him. And they said, maybe if we sell some of our property, but only give some of the money to the poor, we'll be just like Barnabas. They kind of wanted his fame and popularity. Barnabas was a really likable guy. In fact, he's called the son of encouragement. Imagine if you named your child the son of encouragement, or that was just your nickname. You know, this guy is just so encouraging. He's the son of encouragement. We see Barnabas in Acts chapter 9 take Saul of Tarsus and start to disciple him. Remember when Saul went to Jerusalem? He's saved. He's grown in the Lord. He's been saved for a few years. And he's really excited to go to Jerusalem and meet everybody. And the Jews want to kill him. And the Christians don't want anything to do with him because he's been murdering Christians. And then Barnabas came along. And he listened to what he had to say. And it says he took him under his wing and he brought him to the apostles and he helped Saul become accepted by the apostles in Jerusalem. Barnabas had a heart of encouragement. He really had a heart of discipleship. And in my mind, I can't think of anybody better they could have sent to Antioch than Barnabas to deal with this situation. So that's what they did. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And by the way, this wasn't just a quick trip. This wasn't like you and I going from Franklin to Trafalgar. This was about 100 miles away or so. This was a long journey to get there. But Barnabas gets there. And notice what he sees. Verse 23. When he came, he saw the grace of God. Now, what does it mean he saw the grace of God? Did he see like grace in the clouds or something like that? You know? Were they all wearing a grace name tag or something? Or were there a lot of people named grace there? No, he saw evidence of God's grace working in the church. Now, it doesn't tell us what he saw, but he saw evidence, I believe, of their conversion. You might ask, how do I know that God is working in someone's life? 
How do I see God's grace working in my life? I think there's a couple different ways, and these aren't necessarily things that save you, but I think these can be evidences of grace. First of all, does someone have a clear testimony of salvation? How do I know that God has worked in someone's life? What is their testimony? Do they have a clear testimony where you've seen how they've understood the gospel, repented of their sins, and trusted in Christ? Someone could have a really, really cool story. They could have this really cool story of how they turned from sin and how they live this good life now, and they could still not understand the gospel. Do they have a clear testimony of how God has worked in their life? I think that's the most important thing is that you can understand. Do they understand the gospel? When Barnabas got there, he heard the testimony of the Gentiles who were saved, and he saw the grace of God working in their life. Now, I think there are other hints. I don't think these things are quite as important. Maybe that's not the right word for it. But there are other hints and evidences of how God's grace can be working, especially in the life of a new believer. Do you see a zeal and excitement towards the Christian life? Think back to when you were saved and how excited you were to be a Christian. Maybe you were so excited to share the gospel with others. Maybe you were saved at a young age, but you still remember having that zeal and excitement. That doesn't mean that zeal and excitement saves someone. Sometimes that fades over time. It doesn't mean that if you're not excited today, you're not saved. But oftentimes new believers have just an excitement for the Christian life that is so cool to see. Are they sensitive towards sin? It doesn't mean they're not going to sin, but are they sensitive towards sin? And are they quick to repent? Are they growing in their knowledge and relationship with God? I'm not saying these things save you, but I do think they can be evidences of God's grace working in someone's life. Sometimes we think that God is only working in a person's life who seems really perfect, like they never sin, like they never do anything wrong. I actually don't think that's true. I think that oftentimes we see God working in the life of those who confess their sin to him and repent. One of the coolest things you can see in somebody who's newly saved is after they've sinned, and you're not encouraging them to sin, but after they sin, they have this desire to go and make it right. Notice that this evidence of the grace of God makes Barnabas happy. He says he rejoiced. He was glad in what he saw. These new Christians made Barnabas excited. And it says he exhorted them all. Another way you could translate that is he encouraged them all. But not just by pepping them up, by telling them good job, but he helped them grow in their walk with Christ. It said he encouraged them all in their walk with Christ. It says he encouraged them to do what? To remain faithful. It wasn't just a pep talk, but it was encouraging them towards faithfulness to the Lord. What I think is so sad to see is a new Christian get saved and then go to a church that does not encourage them in their walk with Christ. Maybe they go to a church that doesn't have good doctrine, that is shallow, that doesn't actually do anything to help them understand the Bible and grow as a Christian. Barnabas not only saw the salvation of these people, but he encouraged them to be faithful to God. This is such a great example for us as well. There are people out there that are newly saved that need us to come into their lives and encourage them to be faithful 
to God, to teach them scripture, to teach them how to grow as a Christian, and to help them as the Christian life gets harder. Because all of us know, just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean life gets easy, right? It doesn't mean you're not going to have suffering. It doesn't mean you're not going to have challenges. But there are people out there who need you. You might think me. Yes, you, to help them grow in Christ and be faithful to him. This is what Barnabas did. It says, He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose with intensity, with devotion to God. And what happens because of this? We see that they continue to grow. It says in verse 24, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Does it mean that just because we do this, we're going to see so many people saved? But this was a good thing for Barnabas to do. And God blessed the work that he was doing there because more people were saved. Now notice at the beginning of verse 24, it says some things about Barnabas. It says, first of all, that he was a good man. Barnabas is the only person in Acts who is called good. And that's interesting for us to think about. Barnabas was a good man, not because he was able to earn his salvation. We know that's not true. But Barnabas was good. He did what was right. It says he was also full of the Holy Spirit. He had the Spirit. He was a believer. And he was sensitive to the Spirit's leading. He was filled with the Spirit. He demonstrated, I believe, the fruit of the Spirit as well. And he allowed the Spirit to guide him. It also says he had great faith. Think about this. How much faith would it take for you to pack up everything you knew in Jerusalem and go to Antioch where you're not even sure if these Gentiles are truly Christians, but yet Barnabas was called and willing to go. We're not only going to see him faithful in this, but look at the next verse. In verse 25, it says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, this is one of those verses that we can kind of gloss over and think, oh, that's not a big deal. Again, this isn't like driving from Trafalgar to Franklin. This isn't even like driving from Trafalgar to Indy. This was walking about 100 miles to Tarsus to find Saul. And by the way, he didn't even know where he was. How do we know that? Because it says when he got there in verse 26, he found him. So he had to go all the way to the city and he didn't even know where Saul really was. This would have taken him days to find Saul. And then, by the way, when you get there, it's not like you can text Saul and say, hey, do you want to go on this? You know, you can't do a Zoom interview with him. You can't text him and see if he's even willing to go. He's got to tell Saul at that point, hey, I want you to come back to Antioch with me and be part of this church there and help me encourage people. This would have taken a lot of faith, I think, from Barnabas to do this. I think of it this way as I was reading it. Think about even how we call pastors today. Now, oftentimes when a church calls a pastor, they have a search committee or the, the elders will look for the guy who's going to do the preaching, the pastor. And maybe they, send, they have people send in resumes and they do interviews and they have them candidate and they preach for everybody. And maybe they have a big meal and the pastor answers questions and things like that. Barnabas brings another person into this ministry and he just goes to Tarsus and picks him up and brings him back with him. And this, I think, is a pretty incredible display of faith. So it says in verse 26, he found him and he brought him back to Antioch. And they were there for an entire year of teaching a great many people. It says that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 
Why were they called Christians here? Well, I don't think it's just because there are the great number of people. Some people say it's because there were so many of them, and that might be true. But think about it this way. Until Acts 10, all the Christians had been what? Jewish. And then in Acts 10, you have Jews and Gentiles. So you can't call them Jews anymore, can you? So they would need a new name. And the name they called them was Christians. And this stuck for the next couple thousand years where these people are called Christians. And so this would become an identifier for them. They are followers of Christ. Something really cool God does by saving the Gentiles is he makes these people not just Jews anymore, but he's making them into something new, something even distinct from Israel. They're now the church. They're now called Christians. We see Barnabas as a great example of encouraging this church. These people were saved, yes, and that is important. We should share the gospel with those who maybe aren't even like us, who we don't want to share the gospel with. But these people also needed encouragement. These people also needed discipleship. Sometimes churches can be so focused on evangelism that they forget helping people grow in Christ and discipleship. Sometimes churches can be so focused on discipleship that they forget about reaching out and evangelism. How can you encourage someone who's a new believer in their walk with Christ? You might say, well, I don't really know anybody who's a new Christian. Well, go find someone. Lead them to the Lord and then help them grow in their walk with Christ. Like I said earlier, I think Barnabas is such a fantastic example of how to live the Christian life. Think about your life for a second. There was someone, I'm sure, who led you to Christ. Maybe if it wasn't even at the moment of your salvation, someone who gave you a Bible, someone who came alongside you, maybe it was a Sunday school teacher, someone who you first heard the gospel from. And you can probably think of others who helped encourage you as you grew in Christ. I think of my pastor who nobody's ever going to know him from the radio. Nobody's ever going to think of him as some great television preacher. But week after week preached to me the word of God and helped me grow in Christ. Every time I go back to my church in Danville, I see all my Sunday school teachers who are like, you were this small when you were in my class. And now they kind of look up at me, you know, and they get so excited to see what I'm doing. And I always say to them, I can remember being in your class. I can remember listening to you explain the gospel to me. I can remember you being interested in my life. As we see a little one in the back, we, be, we can be faithful as she gets older and we can start teaching her the Bible. That yes, it's Caitlin and Schaefer's responsibility to show her the ways of God. But we as a church family come alongside them and promise to encourage them and support them however best we can. This is how the church handled this issue of who's going to help these people in Antioch grow in Christ. They sent Barnabas. He encourages them as Christians. Lastly, just briefly, notice with me in verse 20, verses 27 through 30, we see issues of generosity. Issues of generosity. Look at verse 27. Now in, the day, now in these days, the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus, here's another great baby name, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Now you might ask, what is going on here, you know? Well, there were people in the New Testament church 
who prophesied into the future what was going to happen. Now, I don't think that happens today. I'm not going to, you know, don't go to my office later and ask me what the weather's going to be like this week. I don't have the gift of, you know, telling the future of prophecy in that way, okay? But this did happen during this time, and Agabus was right. There was a famine. In fact, there were several famines that happened during the reign of Claudius. In fact, people can't figure out when this famine took place because there were actually several that happened during this guy's reign as emperor. So Agabus was right that this happened. In fact, we see him later in Acts 21. Yes, in Acts 21, he tells Paul not to go to Jerusalem because he was going to be persecuted there. And guess what? He was right again. So the point isn't to say, okay, you can have these people who tell fortunes or who predict the future in the church today. But this is what happened during this time. What I think Luke is trying to show us is actually the generosity of the early church. Look at verse 29. Because of this famine that's coming, it says, So the disciples determined, everyone according to his own ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Agabus goes to Antioch. He tells them that this famine is going to come, and the people in Antioch send relief, money, support to people in Judea. It seems a little bit backwards in my mind. You'd think people would be helping Antioch. It's a little bit of like reverse engineering it some way. I think this shows us a couple of things. One, this is how much the church had grown to where now they were the ones sending support to others and people were being generous. And number two, we see again, what is a mark of the early church? They grew in Christ. They understood the gospel. They were generous. And I'm not trying to say that you have to be this extremely generous to be a Christian, but it's one of the really cool things about the early church. They gave to others. It's not just about, oh, they gave to the church a lot. No, they helped others in need often. And oftentimes at great personal expense. It says, so the disciples determined, and notice it wasn't just everybody gave this amount, but it's according to his own ability. Everybody did it as much as they were able. You might say, well, I couldn't give that much. Well, neither did the disciples. They gave as much as they could, as much as they were able to in good stewardship give. Verse 30, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is really the first time we see the word elders in Acts. We're going to run into the idea of elders later. We've talked about it a couple different times in the past few months. What I want us to see from this, though, is that as the church faces needs, as they face people in need, they were generous. And not just the church as a corporate entity, but the people in the church gave to others. It's actually one of the things I love the most about our church. And I told the leadership this the other day. I said, I've not been in a church this small ever, but I said, I've also not been in a church where I can just see, and maybe it happened in other churches I was in, and I just didn't see it. But I said, where I can see how generous and how much people care for each other. It really does me good as the pastor here to not always be the first one who knows when someone is in need. I oftentimes hear people say, yeah, this person was in need, so I went and helped them out with this. This person needed a ride, so I picked him up. This person needed help with this, so I gave to them. And there's sometimes I'm like, well, I didn't know that. Maybe that's my fault. 
but it does my heart good to know that our church does care for each other well. Ask yourself, not even just in finances. You might think, well, God hasn't given me much in money, but who can you encourage? Who can you help with things? When I was in high school, college, you know, I didn't have a lot of money, and I had many people tell me, you know, maybe you can't help someone financially, but maybe you can help move stuff for them. You know, that's how I got as big as I am today. I just help people move a whole bunch of stuff. It's also why I got rid of my truck, because I ended up helping people a lot with moving. How can you be generous towards others? I think it's something that really defined the early church well. These are just some of the issues the early church faced here in Acts 11. It's not all of them. It's not all the issues that the early church would ever face. And guess what? It's not all the issues our church is going to face either. We will face issues, I'm sure, in all four of these areas at different points. We have, we will, at different points throughout our church's life. But with God's grace, we will handle them together as a body. So as I close this morning, I want us to just think about this. How should we handle the challenges that our church faces? How should we as a church handle the challenges that we face? Number one, we should respond with the Bible. We should respond biblically to the challenges that we face with biblical principles. How did Peter respond to legalism? He explained how the Gentiles understood the gospel. How did Barnabas encourage the early church? He encouraged them to remain faithful to God. We will face challenges as well. In fact, I, as I look ahead to the rest of 2023, sometimes I think I don't even know what challenges there will be. But yet I know this, that we as a church can, should, and will respond to them biblically with God's word. Secondly, we should respond with prayer. As we face different challenges, as different things come up, we can face those with prayer. Praying to God, asking for his wisdom, knowing it's much better than anything we could come up with. And then lastly, we respond in unity. We respond together. How many times do you see an act where it says, they responded with one mind, in one accord. That should be our approach as well. We let the devil win when we let these issues divide us as a church. We handle them biblically when we go to the Bible, when we pray about them, and we resolve as a church to handle them together as one body. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on on the rest of our time together. Father, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for how you've led in our life. Thankful for each one of the people here this morning, how you've led them even to this church. God, help us to trust you during the issues we face. Help us to set our minds on you, to respond with your word, to respond with prayer, and to respond together as a church. Be with us, Lord, as we face issues, I'm sure, in the days and weeks ahead. Guide us with your spirit. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.